Welcome to the Bible Study Tutor. My name is Jessica Hutton and I am your Bible Study Tutor for today. Today we are studying John chapter 2. The reading is broken up into two passages. The first 12 verses are usually titled The Wedding at Cana and the passage tells the stories about Jesus attending a wedding at Cana in Galilee along with his mother, brothers, and disciples. The second passage, verses 13 to 25, are usually titled Jesus Cleanses the Temple. And that passage tells the story of Jesus creating a whip to drive the money changers and animals out of the outer court of the temple. Now let's read the chapter. The English Standard Version of John chapter 2 reads, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he drove out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. I've titled this study The Inauguration of Jesus' Glorification because chapter 2 narrates the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. In the Gospel of John, Jesus' glory is fulfilled by his death on the cross. So by naming this study The Inauguration of Jesus' Glorification, I'm speaking about the impact and implications of Jesus going public as his public ministry put him on the radar of people who vehemently opposed him. In the opening 12 verses of John chapter 2, we encounter a fascinating account of Jesus' first sign where the occasion of festivities took an unexpected turn when the wine supply ran dry. Jesus' mother, concerned about this situation, brought it to his attention, to which he responded with a cryptic statement, My hour has not yet come. 
This thought-provoking remark leads us to delve deeper into its significance with the broader context of Jesus' ministry. Although not fully grasping the implication of his words, Jesus' mother encouraged the servants to obey his instructions. As a result, Jesus directs them to fill the stone water jars with water, a seemingly ordinary action that would soon demonstrate an extraordinary display of divine power. It is at this moment that Jesus performs his first miracle, as John refers to them as signs, by transforming water into the most exquisite wine, exceeding all expectations. The impact of this event becomes more significant when the new wine is presented to the master of ceremonies, who, unaware of its miraculous origin, praises the host for saving the best wine for last. This miracle leaves an unforgettable impression on those present, and Jesus, accompanied by his mother, brother, and disciples, they then continue their journey to Capernaum, where they stayed for a brief period. Moving on to the subsequent passage, verses 13 to 25, we read the stirring account of Jesus cleansing the temple. As the Passover approaches, the outer court of the temple became a hub of activity with people exchanging currency and selling animals for sacrifices. Fueled by righteous indignation, Jesus takes decisive action, driving out the animals and money changers from the temple premises, exclaiming, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. This bold act serves as a powerful display of Jesus' authority and his zeal for upholding the holiness of God's house and the purity of worship. When challenged by religious leaders to provide a sign of his authority, Jesus cryptically foretells his future death and resurrection, likening his body to the temple that would be destroyed and raised up in three days. While the religious leaders misunderstand the reference to the temple, John reports that the disciples later come to comprehend the deeper meaning of Jesus' statement. In our study, we will explore the rich and profound insights contained within these passages, offering us a glimpse into the remarkable ministry of Jesus and the transformative power of his signs and teachings. To enhance your contextual understanding of the scripture, let's move to segment two, Wrestle Framework. Wrestle with the book or passage to discover its context. When we study a book or passage, we need to wrestle with the text. Wrestle is an acronym for writer, religion, events, society, theology, language, and exegesis. I developed this framework to help Bible students lay a solid foundation for sound exegesis and hermeneutics by discovering the historical, cultural, literary, and theological context of the book or passage you're studying. To do that, we must understand W, the writer's perspective and motivation, R, the religious and political climate, E, the significance of events, S, social factors that inform the context, T, what theological themes are implied or described in the reading, L, the significance of the author's language choice and how it's translated to enhance our understanding, and E, how to leverage authorial intent to write accurate exegetical statements about the passage and in turn interpret it accurately. Now speaking of writer's perspective and motivation, John 20 verses 30 and 31 specify the author's purpose for writing this book. It reads, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's primary motivation in writing the gospel was to present a unique perspective on Jesus' life, teaching, and identity as a divine Son of God. He aimed to strengthen believers' faith and provide a compelling witness to Jesus' deity and redemptive mission. 
As we read the gospel, we should keep John's purpose at the forefront of our minds as that purpose informs the narratives, literary structure, theological themes, word choice, and other factors that make up this book. Now regarding religious and political climate. To understand the context of John 2, we need to consider the religious and political climate during the time of Jesus. The temple in Jerusalem held immense religious and cultural significance during the first century. The Passover mentioned in the passage was a crucial festival for the Jewish people, drawing a large crowd to Jerusalem for worship and sacrifice. The religious leaders held considerable authority and influence over the temple and its practices. The exchange of currency and the sale of animals for sacrifices in the temple courts were common practices, though they also invited exploitation and corruption. Recognizing the religious fervor and tension within the ruling Roman authorities also helps us grasp the backdrop against which Jesus' actions took place. Events and Context John 2 describes two significant events. The wedding feast at Cana where Jesus performed his first sign by turning water into wine and the cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem. These events have profound theological implications and are essential to understanding Jesus' ministry and his message. By examining the details of the wedding feast, the significance of the wine in Jewish culture and ensuing actions at the temple, we will gain insight into the symbolic meaning and the profound impact of Jesus' actions on both a personal and communal level for all the people involved. Regarding S, social factors. Social factors play a crucial role in understanding the context of this chapter as well. The wedding feast was a significant social event in Jewish society, bringing together families and communities in celebration. Providing wine was a matter of hospitality and honor, and running out of wine can cause embarrassment for the host, particularly for the groom. So Jesus' involvement in providing abundant and exceptional wine demonstrated his care for human concerns and his ability to transform the ordinary into extraordinary. In the temple, the commercial activities raised questions about the integrity of the religious practices. They highlighted the tension between religious leaders and Jesus' teachings on the true nature of worship and faith. Which brings us to T, theological themes. Chapter 2 of John's Gospel unveils the inauguration of Jesus' glorification through an exploration of his public ministry. As part of John's captivating book of signs, that extends until chapter 12, this chapter offers us insights into the glory and authority of Christ that are demonstrated through signs, compelling speeches, and symbolic actions. However, these awe-inspiring demonstrations also trigger resistance and rejection from Jewish religious leaders, ultimately culminating in Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. Remarking on the significance of John's use of the word signs, Kostenberger writes, John, by passing over the Greek words for miracle used in the synoptics, dynamis, which means powerful work, and instead choosing the word semion, which means sign, pinpoints the precise purpose of this and other of Jesus' powerful words as signposts to Jesus' messianic claim. These signs are an integral part of Jesus' messianic mission and must not be separated from it. To observe a powerful work of Jesus while missing the way in which this work validates Jesus' claim of a unique relationship with God is to fail to perceive God's intended purpose of the sign. This then constitutes both the positive and the negative potential of Jesus' signs, according to John. 
If people perceive in a given sign Jesus' glory, that is, Jesus is the Messiah and Son of God, then these signs are powerful signposts and an aid to faith. If these signs are truncated and severed from Jesus' true identity to which they were designed to point, they fail to achieve their intended purpose and confirm people in their unbelief. Thus, as John makes clear, these signs are a double-edged sword having the potential of provoking both faith and incurring judgment for the person who perceives or fails to perceive that to which the signs are designated to point. In his insightful analysis, Kostenberger informs readers that the seeds of Jewish opposition to the Messiah were sown right from the outset. And while it takes time for this rejection to materialize fully, chapter 2 serves as the pivotal catalyst for a chain of events that will inevitably lead to the fulfillment of Jesus' ultimate mission. In essence, this chapter serves as a momentous turning point, setting the stage for the unfolding drama that follows, wherein Jesus' divine purpose and redemptive mission will be brought to fruition. Now to L, language and translation. As we explore the original Greek text, we discover nuances that add layers of meaning to the narrative. John leverages symbolism and carefully chosen words to communicate profound theological truths. For example, using words such as sign instead of miracle signals John's intention to portray the events as more than mere wonders, but as profound pointers to Jesus' divine identity and purpose. Also, the temple cleansing episode is significant as Jesus refers to the temple as my father's house, alluding to his unique relationship with God. The use of temple imagery throughout the gospel underscores the theme of Jesus as the new dwelling place of God among humanity, replacing the physical temple with himself as the ultimate place of worship. And now to our final E, exegesis and interpretation. By immersing ourselves in the historical cultural context of first century Judaism, we gain a clearer perspective on the significance of Jesus' signs, speeches, and symbolic actions. As we interpret the passage with scholarly rigor and spiritual discernment, we gain transformative insights into the person of Jesus and his redemptive mission. These insights not only impact our individual lives, but also offer profound implications for the broader context of Christian faith and discipleship. Moreover, by utilizing this comprehensive approach, we uncover the, the timeless truths embedded in the Gospel of John, inspiring us to appreciate and embrace the transformative power of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, or what John refers to as Jesus' glorification. Now it's time to dive into the observation phase of the inductive Bible study process. During this phase, we will read the passage carefully and note observations that stand out to us, such as key people, places, events, and words. Here's a hint. For key people, notice significant names and descriptions mentioned by the author. For key places, notice how towns and their inhabitants are described. Key events include activities that shed light on the historical cultural context, such as legal or religious events, dialogues, or social interactions highlighted by the author. Lastly, highlighted words are those that are hard to understand, repeated, or have a unique usage. Also, consider phrases or idioms the author uses that may give you insight into the significance of the passage. Now let's return to that passage. The English Standard Version of John chapter 2 reads, 
On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Immerse yourself in the chapter for 10 minutes. First, jot down your observations and any questions that arise. Next, write a summary of your observations. Then search for insights about those observations. To do that, look within the passage first, then review cross-references and use some external resources. Your goal is to get a high-level insight about your observations and the questions you have about the text. You're not interpreting anything yet. So if you're watching the Bible Study Tutor on YouTube, you will see a 10-minute timer on your screen and you will have a list of observations that you can look for to guide you through the observation process. Podcast listeners are encouraged to pause the episode and set your timers for 10 minutes so you can do the observation activity when you can. Your 10 minutes starts now.
Here are some observations I made. Key people. In verses 2 through 12, several key individuals play pivotal roles in the unfolding events at the wedding in Cana. First, we encounter the mother of Jesus who is unnamed in the text. As a guest of the wedding, she takes the initiative to inform Jesus about the wine shortage, laying the groundwork for his inaugural sign. Jesus himself is another key person in this chapter. He attended the wedding as a guest, respond to his mother's concern by performing his first sign. Accompanying him are his loyal disciples who witness this awe-inspiring display of divine power. The servants of the wedding also deserve special attention for their obedience and willingness to follow Mary's instruction and Jesus' directives. Their faithful act to filling the stone jars with water leads to the extraordinary transformation of water into the finest wine, leaving an indelible impression on all present. The master of the feast assumes a pivotal role in this narrative as well, as he is astounded by the exceptional quality of the wine produced by Jesus' sign. His wonderment underscores the profound significance of this momentous occasion. Finally, the author draws our attention to Jesus' brothers, who, along with his disciples and his mother, accompany Jesus on his journey to Capernaum, where they sojourn for a brief period. Now, shifting our focus to the latter part of the chapter, the second passage, we encounter key characters who are involved in the temple incident. Here, Jesus, in his righteous indignation, encounters people who are selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons alongside the money changers who have transformed his father's house into a marketplace. Notably, the Jewish leaders play a prominent role in this scene, questioning Jesus' authority and demanding a sign to justify his actions. These interactions set the stage for a profound dialogue where Jesus cryptically foretells his resurrection through the metaphor of the temple's destruction and reconstruction in three days. In addition, the author thoughtfully highlights the disciples who, after Jesus' resurrection, finally grasp the enigmatic statement that he made concerning destroying this temple and raising it up in three days. Now, this newfound understanding marks a crucial moment of revelation, underscoring the depth and complexity of Jesus' teachings. Now, on to key places. The first half of the passage centers around the significant location of the wedding at Cana in Galilee. As astutely noted by Newman and Nita, authors of the handbook on the Gospel of John, Cana is uniquely mentioned in John's Gospel. This geographical reference holds more than a mere distinction from other places called Cana. Instead, it carries a deeper significance. John specifies Galilee to emphasize that Jesus' inaugural miracle occurred in Galilee, not in Judea, where opposition against him was prominent. In the second half of the passage, Jerusalem, the temple, and specifically the temple's outer court emerge as key places. Newman and Nita offered valuable insights into the Greek terms used to describe the temple in this context. The word temple, Greek hieron, refers specifically to the court of the Gentiles, that is the outer court, rather than the inner sanctuary. Translating temple as the temple area helps avoid the misconception that the merchants and money changers operated within the sacred sanctuary. This distinction highlights the sacrilege committed in the outer court where commercial activities had encroached upon the space intended for prayer and worship, revealing the corruption that necessitated Jesus' righteous indignation and action. These locations offer insight into the broader theological context, enriching our understanding of the implications of this passage. Now, key events. 
In the first half of the chapter, a noteworthy incident unfolds as the host of the wedding faced an embarrassing predicament, running out of wine, a situation that would be considered deeply disgraceful for the groom. Sensing the urgency, Jesus' mother brings this matter to Jesus' attention. His seemingly enigmatic response reveals his profound obedience to the Father's divine will and timing rather than merely adhering to earthly matters, even those involving his mother. Now taking charge of the situation, Jesus instructs the servants to fill the stone purification jars with water. In an awe-inspiring display of divine power, he effortlessly, meaning he didn't speak, he didn't touch, he didn't do nothing, transformed the water into wine, marking the occasion for his inaugural sign. John acknowledges this extraordinary moment as a manifestation of Jesus' glory, leading his disciples to deepen their belief in him. And in the second half of the chapter, the author narrates another powerful scene as Jesus, consumed by righteous indignation, takes decisive action in the temple area. Consumed with zeal, he fashioned a whip of cords and boldly drove out the animals, merchants, and money changers. Next, the Jewish leaders confronted him, attempting to make him explain the authority by which he did those things. In response, Jesus foretold his ultimate mission, declaring that he would destroy the temple and raise it up again in three days. This statement becomes clearer with the benefit of hindsight pointing to his sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection. Both halves of chapter 2 showcase Jesus' glory and authority, unveiling deeper theological implications that underscore his identity as the promised Messiah and divine Son of God. These remarkable events leave an indelible impression on the witnesses, inspiring belief and adoration for the one who will ultimately fulfill his redemptive mission. However, these incredible events also trigger resistance and rejection from the Jewish religious leaders, ultimately culminating in Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And finally, key words. Several words stood out to me in this chapter. Those words include hour, draw, signs, glory, believed, Passover, and temple. And today I want to focus on the key word hour. Now the Greek word for hour is hora. Apparently it's a primary word. It refers to an hour. It can be used literally or figuratively as in day, hour, instant, or season. And regarding biblical usage, it can represent any definite time, point of time, or moment. So in the context of a definite time, point of time, or moment, it refers to a specific time or moment on the clock, similarly to how we use the word hour in English. For example, Matthew 26.45 states, For example, Matthew 26.45 states, Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. In this verse, hora is used to indi indicate a particular moment in time, emphasizing that a significant event is about to happen, the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. It's a specific point on the timeline. Additionally, hora can be used more precisely with a genitive or possessive construction to indicate the fit or opportune time for someone or something. For example, in Luke 22:53, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Here, the phrase your hour indicates the specific moment when those who arrested Jesus were given the opportunity to carry out their actions. So for our purposes, we're studying how the word is used in John 2, 4, which reads, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
in this verse, my hour refers to the appointed time or moment when Jesus' public ministry would begin more prominently. So basically, hora can refer to any specific time, moment, or hour on the clock. It can also carry a sense of the opportune of or appointed time for someone or something to happen as indicated by the genitive construction, which is the case in John 2, 4. So I know you're wondering, what is the genitive construction? So in grammar, the genitive construction, also known as the genitive case or possessive case, is a grammatical case used to indicate a possession, ownership, association, or relationship between two nouns. It is one of the several cases found in various languages, including ancient Greek, as well as Latin, German, and others. Now in English, the genitive construction is typically formed by adding an apostrophe and an S to the end of a noun to show possession. For example, you would put John's car, so it would be John apostrophe S, and it indicates that the car belongs to John. Or you would say the cat's tail, so cat apostrophe S, and it says that this is the tail of the cat. So in some cases, the genitive construction may be formed with just an apostrophe when the noun is plural and ends in S. So like when you see the word Jesus, it says Jesus apostrophe and you don't add an S at the end. Or you might say the student's books. So the books belong to the students and you indicate that by putting an apostrophe after the S in the word students. However, in other languages like ancient Greek, the genitive case is a distinct grammatical form and not necessarily marked with an apostrophe. It's used to show possession and other relationships between nouns and can have various forms depending on the declension pattern of the noun. You got to read uh, the basics of biblical Greek and um, take some of Bill, I think his name is Bill Mounce's class. It will help you. He also has a YouTube channel that interests you because this stuff gives me a headache. I ain't going to lie. So in the explanation I provided earlier about the word hora, the genitive construction was used to express the idea of the fit or opportune time for someone. For example, the hour hora for someone. This construction indicates that the time is appropriate or opportune for a particular person or situation. In ancient Greek, the genitive case is an essential part of the language's grammar and plays a significant role in expressing possession, relationships, and various other concepts. So now that we finish our grammar lesson, let's begin with the interpretation phase of the inductive Bible study. And then I will be able to give you more insight into Hora. But basically the gist of it is, when Jesus said that his hour had not yet come, he was referring to the appointed time, the opportune time for him to go public, if you will, because his timing is based on that of the father and not based on the situation or prompting by his mother or any other thing that may be occurring. So now that we've observed the passage, let's move on to the interpretation phase. During this phase, we will seek to uncover the deeper meaning and theological implications of today's reading. So here's a hint. Ask yourself the following questions. What did the author intend to communicate in this passage? How would the audience have received and interpreted this message? What theological themes are addressed in the reading? And what does the passage reveal about the nature of God? So I want you to spend the next 10 minutes reflecting on the significance of your observations. 
write a summary of your interpretation, and then use cross-references and external sources to conduct in-depth research about your observations. Now this time, your goal is to gain in-depth insights about your observations and any question you had about the text so that you can correctly interpret the reading. However, I think it's best if you write your interpretation first and then compare it with reliable, scholarly, and biblically and theologically sound resources. If you're watching Bible Study Tutor on YouTube, follow the timer on the screen. You'll get 10 minutes and it will give you a list of Bible study research tools and prompts that will help you with the research and interpretation process. Podcast listeners, you are encouraged to pause the episode, set your timer for 10 minutes, and you can do the activity when you can. Your 10 minutes starts now.
Here is my interpretation of the text. Regarding Jesus' first sign as recorded in John 2, 1 through 12, the author may have intended the following. First, to reveal Jesus' glory and deity. The primary intention of recording this miracle is to re reveal Jesus' divine nature and glory. By turning water into wine, John demonstrates that Jesus possesses divine power over creation and the natural order. This sign emphasizes Jesus' unique identity as the Son of God and sets the stage for subsequent signs that will further reveal his true nature. The other purpose is to establish Jesus' messianic role. The wedding at Cana and the abundance of wine evoke messianic imagery and the concept of the messianic banquet. By performing this miracle, Jesus inaugurates the new covenant and symbolically signifies the joy and celebration of God's kingdom. This event reinforces his role as the long-awaited Messiah, fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. John may have also purposed to prompt belief and faith. The reaction of the disciples who witnessed the miracle is significant. John intended to use this sign to prompt belief and faith in Jesus as the Son of God and the promised Messiah. The transformation of water into wine encourages the disciples and others to trust him. Now regarding the temple cleansing recorded in John 2, 13 through 25, the author likely intended to communicate the following. First, to assert Jesus' authority. John emphasizes Jesus' authority over religious practices in the sacred space by cleansing the temple. This event portrays Jesus as the one who has the right to purify and reform worship according to God's will, therefore underscoring his divine authority. The second reason is to reveal the nature, the true nature of worship. The temple cleansing highlights the need for genuine worship from the heart rather than mere external rituals. Jesus confronts the superficiality and corruption that had infiltrated the religious system, emphasizing the importance of spiritual worship and truth. It also indicates the symbolism of Jesus as the true temple. Now this episode foreshadows Jesus' death and resurrection in which he becomes the ultimate and true temple, the dwelling place of God among humanity. The destruction and raising of the temple signify his sacrificial death and subsequent resurrection. John may have also intended to foretell Jesus' ultimate glorification. The reference to Jesus' future resurrection in John 2.22 points to his ultimate glorification, fulfilling God's redemptive plan. John intends to show that Jesus' true glorification is achieved through his sacrificial death and resurrection rather than through earthly displays of power. Now, how would John's audience have interpreted this? John's original audience, likely early Christian communities in the late first century, would have interpreted John 2 with several key insights in mind. First, understanding Jesus' identity. The audience would have recognized Jesus turning water into wine as a significant sign demonstrating his divine power. It would have reinforced their belief in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God as the Gospel of John aims to present and basically prove Jesus' deity. They would have recognized the theological significance of signs. John refers to Jesus' miracles as signs intended to point to deeper spiritual truths. The audience would have seen turning the water into wine as an indicator of Jesus' redemptive mission and his ability to bring new life and joy to believers. They may have also recognized the importance of faith. Now, the passage highlights the importance of faith and obedience. Mary's instruction to the servants, do whatever he tells you, emphasizes the necessity of trusting in Jesus and following his commands. 
they have they may have also recognized the symbolism of the temple cleansing now the temple cleansing at the beginning of jesus ministry would have been a radical and confrontational act challenging the religious establishment it symbolized jesus authority and revealed his mission to replace the old sacrificial system with himself as the ultimate sacrifice and true temple of god foreshadowing jesus crucifixion and resurrection Jesus' prediction of the temple's destruction and his reference to his body as a new temple would have been interpreted as a foreshadowing of his death and resurrection, which is a central theme in the Gospel of John. And it would have also brought to mind contrast with old-style Judaism. The juxtaposition of Jesus' ministry with the practices of old-style Judaism would have highlighted the superiority of Jesus as the fulfillment of law and the embodiment of God's redemptive plan. John's original audience would have understood that this passage was a foundational account of Jesus' early ministry, revealing his divine identity, his redemptive mission, and the transformative power of having faith in him. The signs and symbolic actions portrayed in this chapter would have reinforced their belief in Jesus and deepened their understanding of his role as the Savior and the true temple of God. Now, regarding theological themes and the nature of God that is revealed in this text, the author emphasizes the significance of Jesus' early appearance at the Passover in Jerusalem and the subsequent temple cleansing. Jesus is portrayed as the fulfillment of the true Passover lamb, embodying the messianic role and fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. The reference to Jewish Passover contrasts with the corrupt Old Style Judaism that had lost its true meaning. Through the temple clearing, Jesus symbolically declares a new era and inaugurates the revolution of worship, presenting his body as the new temple. This foreshadows his death and resurrection, wherein he becomes the ultimate temple manifesting God's glory. The passage prompts profound theological reflection, showing Jesus' control over his destiny and the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. The temple clearing also serves as an early prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection, highlighting his divine mission and his ultimate glorification. So overall, both events narrated in John chapter 2 align with John's broader purpose of showcasing Jesus' deity, redemptive mission, the significance of in believing in him for eternal life. So let's move to the final step of the inductive Bible study method, which is application. Application involves the process of drawing parallels from the passage in order to derive principles and precepts that can be applied to our lives. The application phase requires careful consideration of the interpretive insights gleaned from the passage and its alignment with the overarching message of scripture. Application may involve making pragmatic changes, seeking personal growth, and otherwise aligning our lifestyles with the values and principles that are conveyed in the text. During the application phase, it is essential to take into account the broader biblical context to ensure that our application remains consistent with the overall message and teaching of the Bible. By anchoring our application in this larger framework, we can maintain coherence and alignment with the timeless wisdom and guidance provided through the Bible. Now we will explore how today's reading can translate into our modern context. The timer is set for 10 minutes. I have provided you with prompts to help you think about how to apply what you've learned to your life. So your 10 minutes starts now.
Here are some elements for practical life application that I got from the text. While I didn't come across specific precepts or parallels in the text, I did uncover several valuable principles worth reflecting on. First is about emulating Jesus. It's essential for believers to align their actions with the Father's will and timing. Decisions that we make should not be driven by internal or external pressures, but rather by a desire to walk in obedience to God. Here's the second thing. Here's the second thing that I drew from the passage. While the temple cleansing passage, it's often cited to address issues of selling gospel-related products or services. The text doesn't actually deal with this matter. However, we can infer from the text that exploiting people by implying that their spiritual needs can only be met by purchasing your products or services is contrary to the gospel. It is contrary to the essence, the message of Christ. So we should remember that God's grace is freely given to us and the gospel is not for sale. That is true. Yet we should also appreciate the talents and gifts that God has bestowed on individuals who create market and sell gospel-centric products and services and then treat their endeavors with respect and honor. So the key, if you were to draw anything from this text and uh, if you were to use this against any people as I've seen people do, you should look at the whole context is which was what I always emphasize because Jesus demonstrated righteous indignation and what we saw is that he was in the outer court of the temple where the Gentiles were, that was where they were allowed to worship basically. But instead it had become a marketplace so that there was a currency exchange taking place and people were selling the animals that would be used for sacrifice. Since these people traveled from afar to go to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, it was not unusual for them to be selling these animals for sacrifice because it would be uh, it wouldn't be convenient for people to go on these long travel to take their animals that they were going to sacrifice with them. So that was a normal practice. What was not right about it was the fact that these activities, the exchange of currency and selling animals in this area prevented the Gentiles from worshiping in that space. And so the selling and the exchange practices overtook the, the space of worship and so it became something else. It was no longer about worship. It became, like Jesus said, a, a marketplace. So if you're going to think about um, how this could apply in a practical way, or if you ever want to challenge a Christian YouTuber with this verse among others that come up in other books of the Bible, you have to think about the context. When you see people exploiting folks, um, which is what you know, I've studied, they said that they were exploiting people by... Uh, do an exchange rate that was exorbitant. Um, when you do that, what they're doing is basically creating barriers to worship. So if the exchange rate goes beyond what this person can pay, well then now they can't buy the sacrifice, which means they're prohibited from worshiping, which causes a problem because that violation of Jewish law. And then if the Gentiles, this is the only place where they're designated to worship in the outer court, and you're blocking that because you're making it a uh, marketplace, you're making it hard for them to worship, so you're de you're deterring the spiritual world and maturity and the worship that's supposed to be taking place because all of y'all should be focused on God. But that was these things, these activities were deterring that from happening. And that's what grieved Jesus. And so he mindfully, intentionally created a whip of cords. He wasn't like in his feelings. <laughs> he was, it said that Jesus 
he basically he paused and he made a whip of cords probably with the cords that were around the animals that was just laying there and he put it together and he got everything out of there because this is not the purpose of the father's house there was a story a while back where uh juanita bynum was selling it was like a prayer shawl prayer classes and some holy water something like that it was like 1200 something something dollars and the idea was this if you buy these things the, this is how i interpreted the message if you buy these things without a shadow of a doubt your prayers will be answered without a shadow of a doubt uh your prayers will come through the the you will the prophetic anointing or whatever supposedly is on her life is going to be released into your life because you sold into this ministry and it just shows you're you're serious about um uh, reaching god hearing from god that is exploitation that would make jesus pull out his whip but if you see somebody telling you um i'm selling a journal and it is you know like i have bible study journals this is not exploitation this is just me i made a bible study journal to help you you can sell it am i saying that to cover myself no i'm saying it because contextually that is true if i tell you that unless you read and buy my journals you're not going to understand scripture that's bullcrap and that's the, not the right attitude to have. But basically giving people the impression that the only way that they can reach God is through you, through your products, through your services. That's where the problem lies. And then in that case, you could use this passage to rebuke them. It is true. The gospel is free. It's very evident throughout the, uh, the New Testament that there's nothing that we could have done to earn salvation. There's nothing we could do to redeem ourselves. Nothing we could do to reconcile with God. Christ did this. None of us can boast because of our works. So yes, it is true and will always be true that the gospel is free. But I don't want you to get confused with that idea of the gospel being free. Meaning I shouldn't have to buy a Bible. I shouldn't have to sign up for your Bible study class. I shouldn't have to... Uh, I don't know, whatever, a t-shirt about Jesus or something. I shouldn't have to pay for that. No, that's, that's not what this text means. So keep that in mind. Moving on. The passage also calls for restoration of the sanctity of worship. Rather than engaging in religious routines, we must practice genuine worship from the depth of our hearts. Jesus said, we must worship the Father in spirit and in truth. We haven't gotten to that yet, but we will. Our devotion should be rooted in love for God, reflecting wholehearted dedication to Him in both our actions and attitudes. So let us worship God in spirit and in truth, giving Him the reverence and adoration that He rightly deserves. And as to the point that I just made, let us make sure that we're not prohibiting anybody from worshiping God as well freely in spirit and in truth. Tomorrow, we're going to dive into an exciting study of John chapter 3. And to make the most of this inductive Bible study process, I urge you to engage deeply with the material by reading and listening to the chapter multiple times. And doing so will enhance your understanding, allow you to uncover hidden insights that will then enrich the study time that we'll do together tomorrow. So immerse yourself in chapter three and then let's come together prepared for a rewarding and enlightening study experience. So thank you for tuning in for chapter two.
Inductive Bible Study of John. I look forward to connecting with you tomorrow. I pray that this blesses you. And if you did like it, then give a thumbs up, share it with people you know who are studying John or want to start studying the Bible. And let's get this ball rolling. I just want to bless people with this series. And it's a lot. And I'm not going to change that. I've gone back and forth over and over again. I'm not changing anything because this is how people need to learn how to study the Bible. We're doing hermeneutics and exegesis. So you get the intended meaning of scripture, meaning what God wanted to communicate to you through people that he appointed to write. So God bless and I'll see you tomorrow.